The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So, um, we've been talking about the last few weeks, this fourth foundation of mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path, and as you've heard me talk about many times, the Buddha organized how he talked about mindfulness in four ways. And it's really, it's really a development or a refinement of attention. And, you know, it's like anything, uh, when we first begin something, our capacity is, you know, it's, it's not very uh, developed and we're not able to do much. And it's the same with mindfulness. So in the beginning, you know, the first foundation, we're just learning to be mindful of the body. Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, sensing in terms of the physical sensations. Just learning to recognize sensation or physical experience and to track it. So this is sort of the preliminary step to move from a life of being distracted, meaning we're being swept away by our thoughts, by thinking, to just being more grounded in the present moment experience of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and tactile experience. And then once we sort of develop some steadiness with that, then we begin to practice being mindful of the mind, which is more tricky, more slippery an object to be mindful of. So we start with something relatively easy in the mind, noticing the pleasantness and unpleasantness of experience. So no matter what our present moment sense experience is, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or somewhere (coughs) along that spectrum. And we just practice noticing that. Like right now, everybody here in this room is having some physical, tactile experience. So just tune in to the sensations in the body and just see, is it a neutral experience? Is it unpleasant? Or is it pleasant? And of course, there may be some sensations in the body that are clearly unpleasant. Maybe some sensations that are pleasant. Or maybe everything else is just neutral. You're noticing two things. Well, usually you're just noticing one thing, which is what's unpleasant. And then we tend to ignore all the neutral sensations. But if you get cued, like I just cued you, you might actually notice all the neutral sensations, like the clothes touching your skin. For most of us, that's a neutral experience. So that's the second foundation, getting to know this aspect of the mind, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of experience. That's a a mind state in the sense that when I hear a sound, and if by the way I've been conditioned, that's an unpleasant sound, the recognition of that unpleasantness is a mental state. It's not uh, specific to the hearing, the sound itself. You know, I grew up in North Minneapolis, and there were train tracks nearby. So when I hear a train moving in the middle of the night, I kind of get this warm, nostalgic feeling. 
So it's pleasant for me. Somebody else, maybe who has trouble sleeping, and they've lived near a train yard, they may have a totally different association. So when they hear the sound of trains, you know, they might have aversion come up. It may be an unpleasant experience. So the pleasantness or the unpleasantness is um, um, a conditioned response. It arises in the mind. It's not specific to the actual sound of the train. It arises in conjunction with the hearing of the sound. So we begin to notice that aspect of the mind. And we also begin to notice the reactivity in the mind, like whether there's greediness, wanting, or aversion, or the absence of greed, or the absence of aversion in the mind. This is the third foundation. And then lately, the last few weeks, I've been talking about this fourth foundation. In a sense, then, it's the most subtle part of mindfulness practice, and, of course, the most potent, most transformative part of practice is to use this quality of attention, wise seeing, wise attention, to observe the mind. And to, uh, specifically, we're observing how wholesome and unwholesome states come and go. And basically, understanding how it is that the uh, mind arises that leads to suffering, like we begin to know the inner landscape, like what the mind looks like when it's creating suffering for itself. What are the particular characteristics of a mind that is inclining itself towards suffering? And what are the particular characteristics of a mind or a heart that's inclining toward freedom or release or wisdom and compassion? So that would be good to know, wouldn't it? And that's really the fourth foundation of mindfulness, just getting how a learning, how to pay attention to the mind in a way that illuminates whether the mind is inclining toward suffering or whether the mind is inclining toward happiness. And so this understanding of the mind is really, it's an insight. Because mostly, in a conventional sense, we just think that suffering happens to us. We feel a victim to life, uh, to the good and bad, ups and downs in life. And so the more we undertake the systematic training where we're developing our capacity to be awake, to be mindful, starting with the body, recognizing the mind as feeling, the feeling quality in the mind, the presence or absence of greed or aversion in the mind, and then this more refined kind of paying attention where we're noticing the particular dynamic of the mind, like how the mind inclines itself towards suffering or towards happiness. So we're developing or refining the mind um, in order to have insight, insight in, into how suffering comes to be and how suffering can be abandoned. And we can't go right to insight. We really need to uh, develop the practice in this way. It's why it's so useful to um, be enthusiastic about the basic training. And you know, as people like most of us, where we all have, or most of us have pretty busy lives, 
It means, you know, the most important part of the training for us is just a beginning to train the mind to break through this momentum of self-centered thinking. We can call it proliferation. So that's why there's a real emphasis on just, you know, like I said at the beginning of the guided meditation, just recognizing that there is, in fact, a body sitting here. I mean, it's amazing how we can be in a meditation and be completely oblivious to the body as an ongoing experience. Because we have so many interesting things to think about or so many painful things to worry about. You know, And so that's what our inclination is, is just to be swept away with our fantasies about the future, our worries, our thoughts about the past, and not really to be here. So it may seem sort of, you know, silly and uh, we can have doubt, like why, why put out this effort to feel the breath in the body? I mean, what is it about the breath that's going to address the fact that I'm afraid of dying or that's going to address the fact that, you know, everything I've done in my life has been a failure or is going to address the fact that I think I'm so much better than everybody else and feel sort of like, Nobody's worthy of my presence. You know, whatever particular trip we're, we get involved in, what is the point of paying attention to the breath? How does that relate? Well, what it does is it begins to uh, develop a sensitivity. We're using this simple training of paying attention to the body or paying attention to the breath in the body we're just tracking present moment experience. In general, that's all we're doing, is just learning to use the mind, this particular quality of mind that it that knows, to use it to track present moment experience. Because by tracking present moment experience, we're not getting lost in our self-centered thinking. So it's not so much that tracking the present moment sensations of the breath moment by moment as the breath comes in moment by moment as the breath goes out there's nothing so special about that except in doing that what are we not doing we're not worrying we're not planning we're not thinking about the past we're not evaluating our meditation practice wondering if we should be doing a different practice all of that and all of the weight associated with that kind of thinking drops away when we're just with the breath or just with the sound or just with sensation or even just with thought as thought, just with greediness as greediness. So instead of being a greedy person, there's simply an awareness greediness is like this, wanting is like this, or fear is like this. It's a a big difference. So if we hope, you know, if, we, if we're inspired by these talks or by your study about the potential for insight and really freeing the mind from, from its obsessive and afflictive states, then we should be getting more and more enthusiastic about this, these basic first steps in practice. And first steps means that it lasts a long time. We never really go beyond it. Like even the really skilled meditators, people who have been who have a natural talent and have been doing it a long time, 
So you can just imagine, you know, whoever that is for you, the Dalai Lama or whoever you bring to mind. So somebody who's just got everything going for them in this practice, been doing it a long time. You know, Dalai Lama, I don't know, they, they found him when he was four years old. Somehow the, they have a way of tracking down who the next Dalai Lama is going to be. And they grab him from the family when they're young boys, four or five or whatever, you know, and they take him to the monastery and they love him to death and give him all the sort of training from wise, loving people. So he had, you know, I don't know if it's really true, but we could imagine he had the perfect or a really wholesome upbringing in that sense. So if we imagine that, still, I, I would imagine the Dalai Lama is still training his mind not to get lost in proliferation. Right? Because he has a lot to think about, too. You know, all the Tibetan people running a huge organization. So everybody that I can imagine is probably has need to do this basic practice, which is to use something relatively neutral, like the sensations of the breath in the body, or sounds, or other sensations in the body, subtle or gross, to use those basic, relatively neutral experiences to train the mind to track present moment experience as a way of undermining the habit, the tendency to get swept away in self-centered thinking. Of course, even when I'm thinking about you, it's also self-centered thinking because I'm thinking about you in relationship to me. It's really, we don't really know. Uh, it's pretty rare thinking without a real strong sense of self involved, me, mine. It's, it's not necessarily obvious, but it doesn't mean it's not there, this sense of self in our thoughts. So one sure way to undermine that tendency is just to track with awareness, non-judging awareness, the sensations of the breath as it comes in. So just the touching sensation at the nostrils and then the touching sensation as the air goes out. In, out, in, out. Even a few seconds of that kind of non-judging tracking. Then, when thinking does arise and interrupts that tracking of the present moment experience of the breath, then we meet that interruption with a lot of sensitivity. Because just in three or four seconds of being with the breath, the mind's really settled down. And it's much more sensitive. So it's going to see that uh, arising of some strong mental state. It's going to see it with clarity and with balance. And it might be possible in that moment to see, oh, that's just a thought. This is just a thought. And it's like this. Which is a way of seeing a thought without being swept away by it. That's the opposite of having the thought arise, and then that thought, in reacting to that thought, we set in motion the next thought, and in reacting to that thought, we set in motion the next thought, and then this chain of thoughts is what we call proliferation. And pretty much, this fills up most of our lives. And in this way, this is the opposite of insight. Because when, there's, when we're uh, reacting to one thought after another, like association to association to association. There's really nothing, there's no learning in that at all. It's just a habitual unfolding. There's no creativity. There's no transformation of how we are 
in the world. We're simply repeating what we've been conditioned, how we've been conditioned to be. So we begin just with somehow breaking free of this almost ceaseless proliferation. Then, once we do that, then we can begin to have a sense of what's skillful and unskillful. Because there's more sensitivity. And we can start to see what arises and goes in the mind. So this is just the beginning of awareness of the hindrances, which I've talked about a couple of weeks ago. You know, just getting a sense that there are hindrances, and these hindrances arise in my mind. I can't blame the loud sound for the aversion, because the loud sound is one thing, but the aversion to the loud sound is arising in my heart, in my mind. It's not... I, I don't blame the the tractor or the big truck outside. Something is arising right here in this heart and mind in conjunction with that sound. But it's not inevitable. I mean, certainly you can hear a loud sound without having aversion arise or have even pain in the body without aversion arising. So we begin to learn something about the hindrances. That's the the real hook for proliferation. And we don't even get there, we don't even get to the place where we can begin to see these hindrances unless there's enough steadiness, unless we've really worked with the breath, worked with sensations, worked with present moment experience in this neutral way, just tracking present moment experience. This, 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 this. Now it's like this. That develops the sensitivity the sensitivity helps us see that hindrances are not the same as the sense contact that they're arising with. So when you see something that's pleasant, there's the seeing, and then there's the feeling that I like this, the pleasantness of it. Now normally we don't distinguish the two things. We actually think the object is what we want. Right? That's the, that's the normal thing. But when the piece of chocolate is sitting in front of us and we see it, or maybe even smell it and see it, then we can, you know, if we're patient, we can just stay there with the experience. And we see the brownness of it and maybe smell the whatever we smell in it. But we can see that the smell is one thing, the seeing is another thing, and the wanting is a third thing. And we can make peace with the scene, you know, the brownness, it's just brownness. The smell is just the smell. And the wanting, well, wanting is just wanting. It's just that sort of energetic, sort of wanting to go out and take it. Or this thought, you know, if only I put that in my mouth, then I'll be happy. It's just that thought, that impulse in the mind. And we can just really start deconstructing our experience in this way. Now, this is so potent just to be able to do this. So if we track present moment experience enough, we have sensitivity. With that sensitivity, a whole, it's like a whole other world opens up to us. Because normally, we're just assuming that uh, what we want and what we don't want is somehow in the experience itself, in the scene itself, the sense object itself. But now we're seeing how responsible our mind is 
for our fears and desires, our aversions. It's not so much the world that we're averse to or that we want, but it's what's arising in the mind based on how the mind has been conditioned. So that's like a whole other universe. So all of a sudden the curriculum shifts. So originally the curriculum is just to notice there is present moment experience and to track it. And then when we do that, there's enough sensitivity. And then we have this other curriculum, which is to notice what arises in the mind, heart, in conjunction with our sense experience. So we have a memory. So sometimes our sense experience is just a thought, like a memory. So we have a memory, and then something arises in conjunction with that memory. Like if it's a pleasant memory, then there's a desire for that memory to continue. So we're just starting to notice what arises in conjunction with experience. It's like a subtle level of understanding karma. So instead of understanding karma, like if I hit my wife, she's going to hit me back, you know, cause and effect. Here we understand in terms of our own mind. If I see something attractive and reach for it, then this is, it leads to tension, you know, wanting. If I see something I don't like and I contract, it leads to tension. So we're just starting to see the, the uh, consequences of intentional mental actions. So not just the sort of consequences of acting in the world with our words or with our actions, but even more importantly, we want to understand the consequences of our mental actions. How, whether we're identified, attached to thoughts, or whether we're seeing thoughts as just thoughts. And what are the karmic implications for those two different ways of relating? So this is a whole other way of relating. And the neat thing is, once we start relating on that level, things really start to quiet down. Because we get really good at avoiding a lot of the things that disturb the mind. Not everything, of course. Now, this whole process can happen in one sit, you know. That's why I was mentioning before, even the Dalai, someone like the Dalai Lama has to go back to just tracking present moment experience. You know, he might do his morning chanting just as a way of coming into the present moment or do some breath meditation or do some visualization as they do more in the Tibetan tr Buddhist tradition. So he'll do some sort of basic mindfulness practice but it's in the service of this deeper practice that I'm describing. And then when we're observing the hindrances and not getting caught by the hindrances, not identifying with them, then things settle down even more deeply. And, and then it's like a whole other layer of practice begins to open up. And the one way to describe it is uh, we, it's like a further deconstruction of experience. So on the level of seeing the hindrances, there's still a very uh, personal relationship to experience like, you know, oh yeah, that's, that's just aversion and I, I don't want to get caught up. I don't want to get identified with that aversion. It's just aversion, Mark. It's just what it is. That's just attraction and it's like this. But the more we do that, the mind settles down, quiets down, and that deepening sensitivity, then we begin to notice something even more Profound, profound in the sense that we don't, we rarely see it. So that's why we call this insight. We start to, it's like our layers peel away, and we see more subtle aspects of what's always been true. This is the process of insight. So what do we see? 
Well, we see that all of this, the whole process, is somewhat impersonal. Like the fact that the hindrances are rising, or the fact that wholesome mind states are rising. It's all kind of a lawful unfolding. The sort of mind and the external circumstances. There's just a web of causality or conditionality happening here. And we just start to have insight into the naturalness and the impersonal nature of our what we normally take to be personal experience. And it's such a relief. It's a, it's a very, uh, uh, it's very conducive to this feeling of release and wholeness and trust. This is where, in Buddhism, faith comes out of this deep insight into this level of practice. What do we have faith in or trust in? We have trust in this natural process. This is what often we call dharma or dhamma. Dhamma in Pali and dharma in Sanskrit two ancient languages from India. And so when we say, uh, I have faith or trust, or I take refuge in Dhamma, it means we're taking refuge in the naturalness and in the impersonal nature of all phenomena. Not as an ideal or as a philosophical dogma, but from our direct experience that arises when the mind is just subtle and the attention is more refined. And we just begin to see how the mind comes and goes, what comes and goes in the mind and around us, we see it in a natural, conditional way, a lawful way. When we see that lawfulness, unavoidably it leads to letting go. That's that release I was mentioning. It can't, we, the heart-mind can't help but let go because we see the naturalness of it. It's like seeing that there doesn't need to be an anybody reacting to the system. It's like really getting the process nature of our existence. But when I'm holding myself apart, sort of constructing the sense of me having this experience, then it feels very appropriate to react to it, to react to the pleasant stuff one way and to react to the unpleasant stuff another way. But the more we see that the whole thing is process, even the sense of being a witness to it or an observer of it, even that's part of the natural process, it's conducive to letting go, to this deep trust. And this is really a deeper balance in the mind. So the more of this trust, this confidence, the more stillness, this is where the deeper states of equanimity arise or impartiality where we can be really intimate with our friends, with our jobs, with our circumstances, with our body, with our mind. Really intimate means non-judgmental, non-interfering. So it's not like we're withdrawing from the world. It's just the opposite. Really being present, intimate, but impartial. And it allows for a responsivity because then our participation in the world, in the moment, is perfectly natural and responsive. It doesn't come out of greed or aversion or any kind of reactivity because that's what's been stilled through this process of refinement of attention. That's actually what's being undermined. And in fact, if you want to tell your friends what you practice, tell them you're on a path from reactivity to non-reactivity. 
It's not a path from activity to passivity. That's not this path. The beginning of the path is all about activity. The end of the path is all about activity. There's no such thing about being alive, being a, a, a living human being, and being an inactive. You can't be inactive as a human being. Sitting on a couch is just as active as going out to save the world. It's just a different kind of activity. So we're going to be active as long as we're alive. The question is, are we reactive? Or is our life the expression of wisdom and compassion unfolding naturally without a center to it? Not Mark being wise and compassionate, but wisdom and compassion unfolding naturally, lawfully, because of the absence of self-centeredness, self-centered greed, self-centered aversion. Even wanting to be kind and generous is grit or friction in the system. It gets in the way of real compassion and real, real wise action. And so this deeper level that I'm talking about now the practice, the mindfulness practice, is very subtle. And so last week I just began talking about the seven factors of awakening, so I want to touch on them a little bit more. And it's interesting, in the Buddhist tradition, these seven factors, it's really a mind recognizing the absence or presence of these wholesome states, wholesome qualities. I'll just remind you, and it was in the sheet I handed out last week, and if you didn't get one last week or the previous weeks, you can just see me, I have some up here. Um, but the seven factors, so we have three energizing, three tranquilizing factors, and then mindfulness is the neutral factor. It's the one that brings things into balance. So we're just noticing if we have too much energizing factors, that naturally will lead to the arising of the tranquilizing factors and vice versa. So the three energizing factors, recognizing the absence or presence of interest or investigation, energy or persistence, and rapture or joyful interest, the kind of uh, bliss of, of, uh, of an engaged mind, a wholesomely engaged mind. So those are the three energizing factors. Interest, investigation, energy or wholesome effort or persistence, and the bliss that arises from that. We call it rapture. And then the three tranquilizing factors. Tranquility, <coughs> concentration, and equanimity. So tranquility is really a kind of ease, the ease of contentment. It's like a, the heart relaxes. That's tranquility. And then concentration is the mind, uh, the mind being undisturbed, undistracted. Then whatever is being attended to is being attended to with the whole mind. So we're wholly there, like mindful of the breath means the mind isn't distracted. So when we observe the touching sensation, there's like no wavering. There's no sort of like worrying if we're doing it right or wondering if the guy, person next to us is doing it better than us. There's none of that. There's just that. And we're not anticipating the next moment of the breath or wondering about the previous moment of the breath, but just right there. That's concentration. The unification of the mind. So 
the non-scatteredness or non-dispersing uh, uh, of the mind. That's concentration. And then equanimity is the impartiality. So if, we're, if the mind is really full in that way, like in concentration, unified in that way, then there's no sense of Mark who wants things to be a particular way. It's like in that state of full concentration or unification of mind, there's just knowing and there's no sense of mark being constructed in the mind who would have a personal preference one way or the other. So this is a deep state of equanimity that arises when the mind is whole or concentrated. Does that make sense? Why that would lead to equanimity or impartiality? So then the question is, now, you hear, we hear this list, you know, mindfulness, the three energizing, the three tranquilizing. And then, of course, from our conventional point of view, we think, i got to go out and do that. You know, I've got to be these seven things. And we create this big trip for ourselves. And all we do is fuel the seeds of judgment, you know, comparison and disappointment and discouragement and forget this. I'm going to watch Malcolm in the Middle. When and I have watched that a few times at 10.30. And it's just so easy. That's my confession. It's just so easy to, uh, to fill our lives with things. You know, that's a relatively wholesome thing to do. But it doesn't get us anywhere. And we could easily spend most of our life doing these things, you know, that are relatively wholesome, like knitting sweaters for our friends and, and you know, renovating our kitchens and, you know, seeing movies and having dinner with our friends, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we can get really inspired about the potential to transform our lives by using our life, and especially using this quality of attention, really to transform our understanding. But we need to approach it in a systematic way so when we get to that level, then it's very subtle. So the mindfulness has to be very subtle. So when you hear this teaching and you, and you approach it in a non-subtle way, it's off base. So remember, the way we get to the subtle practice is we build up. We pay attention to the body sitting. And then if we do that well enough, we can actually feel the breath in the body. And then if we do that, then we try to track it. So can we be with the breath for a few seconds without any wavering? Good, then, then try four seconds, and then see if you can get to ten seconds, and then maybe two sets of ten, or ten breaths, and then two sets of ten breaths, you know, and then drop the counting and just be with the breath without the counting, you know, and then when that subtlety, that of practice, then you're then you're observing the hindrances as well as being with the breath, you're observing when the hindrances come in, and just seeing how they're separate, they're distinct qualities in the mind, learning how to abandon them not to fall under the influence of the hindrances. That deepens. Then just seeing how impersonal it all is. So then the practice becomes much less intrusive. We're just letting things be, just observing without any agenda. And then finally, just this, this, this last teaching of the um, factors of awakening, the three energizing, the three tranquilizing, and the mindfulness, it's really just remembering the possibility of these wholesome seven states is what actually ignites them. 
So try this. When your mind is subtle and you're feeling pretty balanced and unafflicted in your practice, right? This means you've already are dealing pretty skillfully with the hindrances when they arise. So when fear or judgment or discouragement or wanting arises, you're pretty good about abandoning it. You're not getting swept away. So then with that level of stability, just bring to mind these seven qualities. And it can be as simple of a technique as uh, saying the word in your mind, of course not out loud, but just saying the word equanimity or investigation. Like, or uh, ask a simple question. Uh, uh, where, where is the experience of investigation? How is the experience of investigation present? And, you just, and then you just continue with your practice. So you're just setting that intention to recognize the wholesome mental quality of interest or investigation or the wholesome mental quality of energy, persistence. And then you just continue with your practice, whatever that might be, whether it's with the breath or noticing and abandoning the hindrances or just noticing the impersonal flow of phenomena, physical or mental phenomena. But you'll see that those particular, you know, any of these particular seven qualities, if they become highlighted, you just start to notice whether it's just in a seed form or in a fully developed form, the presence of equanimity. And you have insight, oh, equanimity is like this. Now don't get attached because that would be a hindrance. That's called craving. Oh, equanimity, I've always wanted to be equanimous. Then you're back needing to abandon the craving. Oh, this is craving now, and craving is like this. Wanting to be equanimous is like this. And then you abandon the craving, and then you can have the thought, the wholesome thought about tranquility. And you notice, oh, this is that deep relaxation in the heart, the, the tranquility of contentment. And it's like this. And we see it in a neutral way, like it's just an impersonal force in the mind. Even these very wholesome qualities are impersonal. They arise due to causes and conditions. And one of the causes that supports the arising of these wholesome states is remembering the possibility of being equanimous or having interest or being mindful. So this is our homework this week to just notice uh, when the practice is relatively stable and you're not feeling so afflicted, then just to bring to mind the seven factors. So you might even want to have a list if you think you won't remember. Just make a list for yourself, put it in front of you, or have this handout that I, I made for us, have that in front of you, and just see. Just, But it may be even better that's printed pretty small, so just write out the seven qualities. And it's just like you're doing a little um, survey, just a scene. I just... Uh, in Buddhism, there's such a, a tradition of this wholesome reflection where we're using just little moments of skillful thinking to support the awareness practice. So this is not proliferation, you know, where we're going off into some philosophical, you know, spinning about equanimity and what that means and, you know, how it is written about in the Buddhist tradition as opposed to the Christian tradition. and It's not about thinking about equanimity. It's just like planting the seed with the thought and then going back to mindfulness, awareness. But with the particular orientation to notice 
the presence and the quality of equanimity as a mind state. In the Buddhist tradition, I, I meant to mention this a little earlier, the Bojanga Sutta, which is the sutta on the seven factors, uh, it really, Bojanga comes from the word awakening, and then Janga or Anga, that part of the word means the cause, uh, it has to do with like causality. So what causes awakening? That's what these seven factors refer to. The factors in the mind that when, are, when they're present and in balance, inevitably lead to insight. Can't be avoided. So they would use this discourse, even at the time of the Buddha, as sort of a healing. And there's one example in the discourses, the stories from the time of the Buddha, where the Buddha uh, chanted his teachings on the seven factors of awakening for one of the monks that was really sick, and his illness vanished. And then a little later, toward the end of the Buddha's life, he was really sick, I forget what he had, and one of his monks chanted the teachings, his teachings, to him, and his illness was relieved. And you know, it's just it's just interesting, both sort of as a story. But I think it's nice to also just stay open to this possibility that a balanced mind is deeply healing. It's deeply healing. Now, it doesn't mean if you break your leg. You know, your bone is going to fuse back together in just the right way. But, but I think uh, from my own experience, and I think it's just useful to keep an open mind about how healing a balanced mind is. And if you don't believe that, what we all have direct experience with is how destructive an imbalanced mind is. Right? So if we know from our own experience and being around other people who are imbalanced how much suffering can be set in motion, then it's pretty easy to open to the possibility that a mind, especially in these very deep states of balance, where the energizing and the tranquilizing factors are perfectly in balance, that maybe something quite dramatic can happen in terms of spiritual and emotional and maybe even physical healing just to stay open to that possibility. So I'll leave the talk here. We have about 12 minutes. If people have some questions or any comments about uh, your practice, which you're noticing in regards to what was said tonight, what comes to mind? any of these factors, the seven factors? Mm-hmm. Can I say your name, please? Sarah. Averse. I think yeah, averse to the sound. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something. There's so on each level, you know, as I described tonight, there's a there's there's a real profound transformation that has to happen. And so at the level of working with the hindrances, we're doing something quite profound with our awareness. So as we as we trust more and more the possibility of just being awake or aware or what we call mindful, then that means non-reacting. So in a way, we're really dying to that impulse to react, to tighten up with aversion. So that's what I meant earlier about being intimate, that it's really a practice of being intimate. So we're really being undefended. So we're letting the unpleasantness of that sound or whatever that experience is, we're really letting it in. We're, in a, in a sense, being violated by the unpleasantness. And we're discovering that it's okay to be violated by the unpleasantness. It's really neat this time of year, not today because we're so warm, but as it gets cold, and especially in the beginning of the fall when we're not used to cold weather, it will feel, when we walk outside, sometimes it feels like a violation. Like somebody's doing per- something personal to us by the 30-degree weather. And if we're practicing, we can... We can practice really letting it in. In other words, I mean, it's actually very simple, but it's, it's, it's radically different than how we're uh, habitualized, which is to relax with the cold or to relax with the disturbing sound. So like today at noon, they're doing the sweeping of the streets in Minneapolis, sweeping up all the leaves, and the guys, you know, who pick up the leaves with the big shovel and the sweeper and the guy in the pickup who's in charge, I guess, of everybody. They all parked out here and chatted for about 20 minutes. And they left the cars running. <laughs> and I, I had my window open because it's nice. I usually work in this room here. And they're, you know, the cars are just running. And, uh, and it's just such a, it's, you know, even something as silly as this, it's like there's real freedom in first recognizing the tendency to react and just to see how useless that is, how unproductive that is, and to discover, to have insight that this can be completely let in, meaning to be with this in a non-reactive way. There's tremendous freedom in that. But the part of me that doesn't like it and wants it to be different, that has to die. And so that's what you can look for in your practice, like that little death. The part of you that doesn't want it to be this way has to die, and it's replaced by a kind of a, a deeper a wisdom that is willing to allow things to be the way that they are because this is how it is. What else comes to mind? Part of, I speak a little bit louder. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it sounds like you're, I mean, and, and what I meant to say more clearly is that we're jumping around the whole spectrum of practice from moments where our practice is really subtle. Of course, most of our moments, it's just cutting through the proliferation, just feeling the body, just knowing there's a body happening here. But uh, but all of us, even, even people relatively new, have moments of really subtle practice. But the way you describe that, yeah, it sounds like, the edge right there for your practice is um, to notice when uh, your opinions are being challenged or when judgment is being triggered, to notice that there's the words that the person's saying, for example, and then there's a reaction in the mind. Now, the reaction is arising in conjunction with the words that you're hearing. But you want to, You don't want to, uh, in a kind of a dull way, assume the two things are one thing. They're really two things. There's the hearing, you know, and then there's the reaction to it. And then if you can distinguish that there are two things, then you can actually look at the reaction as something, as a phenomena in the moment. But if you don't separate the two, you'll never see the mind. All you'll see is your concept of what's happening, which is this person's wrong. And you'll never get freedom because that concept that this person is wrong comes with reactivity. You, you know, that reactivity is the natural response to the thought this person's wrong. But if you can see this person's speaking and has a thought, you know, and there is this reaction to that thought that he's expressed or she's expressed, then we can observe mindfully the reaction in the mind and practice making peace with it, being intimate with it, not needing it to be different. So you're not observing the reactivity in your mind in order to get rid of it. You're observing it in order to understand what it is, what it's like this, and it's unpleasant. And it's the the deep understanding of it that leads to the letting go, the letting go of the identification with that reactivity. So the letting go happens naturally by understanding it for what it is and what it isn't. So yeah, it's, it's that discerning, like uh, it's kind of a, a deep sense of responsibility, like we're taking responsibility for our patterns of reactivity in the world and not blaming the sounds or what people say or what people do for all of our reactivity, but really seeing that it's arising in this heart right here. And we can see it at, see it for what it is. They really create some possibilities, some freedom. I forgot your name. Could you remind me? Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Other thoughts people have? We have time for maybe one or two more comments. Mm -hmm. Well, ultimately, nothing's hardwired, but but or or the other way, say that everything's hardwired, but can be changed. You know, we can rewire. But so that's our predicament. So I think what you're describing is some things are a lot harder to practice with. So we practice with the things that are less hard, and then and then 
the odds of practicing in that sort of situation increase. In other words, mindfulness comes into that process sooner as opposed to later. Now, maybe not in the first moment, but someday maybe in the first moment. So, in the first moment of hearing the dog, there's the hearing, there's the fear, and then there's knowing there's fear, right? Normally, there's hearing the dog, there's fear, and then there's the reaction to the fear. I've got to get the hell out of here. Um, or why the hell do people have dogs off leases or something like that. But there could be just knowing, oh, fear is like this. Now, that knowing doesn't prevent you from running, doesn't prevent you from staying your ground or whatever you're going to do. But what it does is it, it helps the cut the proliferation. So the mind, we don't need to proliferate unless there's a reason to. And almost all proliferation isn't useful. So we can just stop it right there, which is fear. Because we know how to be with fear. We know how to be intimate with fear. That's the possibility uh, that allows us to not proliferate. To avoid, We proliferate to avoid feeling what's present. So we think about it. And, and it is hard. There's some situations where it would be very hard to do. But you know what? We can, even in hindsight, it's useful to reflect back, boom, 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 on what happened, and to just, with our imagination and our memory, to say, oh, that's the moment. And you can even use your imagination, remembering the hearing of the dog, oh, because it, it will trigger the same feeling, but now you're back at your house. And you can sort of, oh, well, can I be with this now? Because there's actually no dog now. Can I just be with the fear now? So we can train ourselves in these situations that are very difficult, where it isn't very likely we're going to be mindful. And uh, that increases the probability that we actually will be more mindful in the future. But generally, we practice in situations that are not so challenging, like when we're sitting. That's why we sit. It's like we're sitting practices, creating a situation where the odds are best that we can actually do this practice. So that then we have more probability of doing it when we're not sitting. Mm-hmm. And then we'll hand up to you, Tony. Yeah, I'm glad you did share that because I think that's that's right. Most of us, we feel like when you hear that instruction about seeing things as just sort of impersonal phenomena, it can feel like, well, who would want that? But actually, it feels good when we start seeing that way. Thanks for sharing that, Tony. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a couple breaths together.